And this is a, all Q&A. Like we, we're literally gonna start with questions from the beginning. We have several that are actually on your sheet that were sent in early. I think we had one sent in, maybe it was yesterday. It's not on the sheet that we'll cover. And then obviously questions that you ask now. I, I wanna I just say from the beginning what, what we're trying to do. And it is tricky. We are trying to wrestle as the church with, first of all, a very hard topic, right? It's not a light one. This is complex and it's emotional. It's a heated topic. It's dealing with some very dangerous things in our culture and our world that we need to think about. But we also have this other thing of being the church who is on mission, right? So in one sense, here's the trick. Think, think of it this way. We need to be both prophets in our world, speaking the truth, and priests ministering. That's hard to do. And the people that are objects of our scorn are actually and also the same people who need Jesus. So see how tricky that is? Like, and if you err too strongly on one side, if you capitulate to what the people want as a, just, as a, as a kind of a alien sense of love and compassion, then you're not helping them get the truth. But if you're so harsh, so separatistic, so aggressive in your engagement, then you're not actually ministering to the very people who need to be ministered to. And I have sensed, and I think Casey would say this, there has been a spectrum of responses even in the body here, right? You, those that wrestle with that priestly role, they, they want to be prophets. They want to stone somebody. They don't want to heal up wounds. And others that are so priestly that have literally said, is this even a welcoming church for somebody who's struggling with this? Like, would we, would we accept somebody here who literally wants to follow Jesus, but they're wrestling with sexuality and gender? I don't know if I feel comfortable bringing them to this place. Both of those have been the responses from the exact same class as we've had. And I think that reveals partly just, it is complex. The people that we are assigned to engage with and disagree with vehemently on biblical truths are also the ones we're called to be priestly caring for and ministering to. And we're probably gonna err on one side or the other. Kind of like right or left-handed, right? We're probably not all ambidextrous. We're gonna probably err to one side. We're either gonna to wanna to be the prophetic response and all this priestly talk just feels like we're kind of giving up on the prophetic truth of the gospel or we're gonna err on the priestly side and the prophetic stuff just feels harsh and not like Jesus. Welcome to the challenge of this. And again, why we've talked about both principles, theological truth, but also posture and trying to wrestle with those together. Well, let's read, let's read this covenant together that we have done every time it's at the top of your notes. Then we will pray and then we'll start right in to question number one. But let's read together. Lord, help us by your spirit to hear and see your word rightly and wisely apply. Listen actively with a desire to learn especially viewpoints not our own. Speak with grace only to build up and encourage one another. Honor all people and see all as made in your image. Love all people, even when it is hard, just as Jesus Christ would do. Question number one, I'm going to take this one. Um, and Casey, we'll, we'll jump in as possible. It, right there under doctrine, Casey broke this up under doctrine, <clears throat> and then some gender dysphoria and transgender, so we kind of categorized them. 
Is the Bible's teaching on sexuality, gender, really a first order, essential doctrine, or is it second rank? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the question is stemming from, is it really first order? Is it not something we can agree to disagree about? I think the question, the way I heard it framed secondhand was almost kind of a, are we, are we intending to view these people as non-Christians if they disagree about this? What if they agree with all these other doctrinal truths? Like they believe in Jesus, uh, they believe in substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, etc. That's a good those are good questions. Let me frame it this way. When I gave those categories, which I'm totally borrowing from a guy named Gavin Ortland, who wrote a book on this called Theological Triage, I actually, they're really called first-rank doctrines, not first or second or third-rank practices. So at a doctrinal level, there are some truths that if you don't hold them, you are not holding to Christianity. You deny that Jesus is God, you're not dealing with Christianity. You deny the atonement and the cross, or you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you're not dealing with Christianity. That's another religion. That's not Christianity. So when it comes to then practices like this, what, what does that look like? That is tricky. It is trickier to know that we wrestle with. The argument that I gave when I talked about this the second week of this class was that the problem is your view on these issues, speaking doctrinally, your views on these issues bump into three core pillar doctrines. The doctrine of who God is as creator, how he made the world, made you and me. You can't mess with that. The doctrine of anthropology, what it means to be human, his design for the world, those are big pillars. Those aren't just small details like we're just debating eschatology or some other smaller points of a nuance of this or that. I mean, these are big. And the third one was the doctrine of sin. And the Bible is clear on sexuality and gender. Not as much the applications. That's the place where you and I are wrestling with that priest and prophet. But how God designed it, male and female, there can be no debate. How he designed marriage, no debate. Right? Those kind of things. There's just no, you, you can't, de- there's no debate. If you're denying that, you're distorting clear biblical passages in Scripture. So I guess the question then comes down to what do we do or how do we think about or how do we relate to a person a, a, or a church that is actually denying those straight line doctrinal truths? And is it, and how do we, how do, how do we rank that? And that's where you're, you're now moving from first rank, first or second order doctrines, think of Jesus regarding him as savior, to first or second order practices, think of regarding him as Lord. And choose a different, just for hypothesis, just choose a different topic. What if there was somebody who was a, completely thought pedophilia was okay, but they just didn't think it was wrong at all? Now, what do you do with that person in regard to church membership? Or what if murder, like murder's okay. Honestly, Old Testament sanctions it, right? They actually give you a biblical argument for it from the Old Testament. Like we should slaughter the Philistines. Like God says it, and I'm telling you, modern day Philistines are so-and-so, and so I'm taking them on. And lots of people have been like, what do you do with that? Now you're, yet that person would say, oh, I completely agree in inerrancy, substitutionary atonement, the Trinity, Jesus 
is God right doctrinally? What, what, what do I do? But practice, ooh, that gets difficult. Even you might even throw something out like this. Does Satan have any questions about first-ranked doctrinal issues? You think Satan's like, I just don't know if the resurrection's really true. Remember James chapter 2, even the demons believe. Again, what makes them uh, enemies of God is not that they don't understand doctrine and nobody catechized them. They don't know who Jesus is. It's that they, it's, it, it's that they know are unwilling to submit to Jesus as Lord. So it gets to such a place, even though we want to be gracious in posture and ministerial in practice, that there are some things that if you morph that and change that, you've messed with so much of Christian doctrine and or discipleship that that is just simply out of bounds. It simply must be. Maybe, maybe we could even look at it in, in different ways too, right? I don't think we have to be the ones to, that are making the judgment on a particular person per se, because we never fully know a person's heart. God knows those things. And maybe it's different. I mean, Case and I were talking about that this week in preparation. It, it looks different institutionally when you're talking about an agency that is promoting something versus like your relative. Like there's just a different, there's a different kind of engagement you might have with those people who's your relative who's coming to Christmas versus like an agency that you would just simply say is demonic and evil. But the reality is, I still think it's important to rank this high. I don't think it's something that is pastorally wise to say we can agree to disagree on. I think it bumps into what we believe about Jesus as Savior and what we should acknowledge regarding Jesus as Lord that's significant enough that I'm unwilling to call it second rank. I think it needs to be a first rank. You, anything you want to add to that? Uh, not really. I, I will say there is, we talked a lot about this, there is the, um, the principle of doctrine and, and what it is that we believe, but then there's also the practice, which you're kind of getting at between first, second order, principle, practice. And um, it, it's just important to know that we really only spent one, maybe one week out of the whole growth hour on principle because they're pretty uniform what the church has taught on these topics about sexuality, gender, uh, is pretty uniform across church history and the scriptures are pretty clear on it. Um, it's only really in our modern mind do we have kind of a challenging and a, a warping of, of these doctrines and some embracing of some from doctrines that are, would be foreign for anyone else in church history. Um, but just know that we took at least four weeks on posture. Uh, so so uh, I, I think that's more or less uh, a digression from the question itself, but uh, we, th we think that there's a real clear principles in Scripture, uh, and, and really where, but we, what we want to wrestle with as a class then is our posture towards engagement. And, and um, yeah, maybe that is a segue into the second question. How do we engage fellow Christians on topic of sexuality and gender, especially those we disagree with. For example, some churches have pride flags and some churches protest pride rallies. I mean, I think you already partially covered uh, this. I, I will say, um, at the very bottom of our note sheet, Dr. Mark Yarhouse, who's written a ton specifically on the topic of gender dysphoria, he recently published a book in 2023 called Talking with Ch Kids. I think it's Talking with Kids or Talking with Children about gender identities. 
There's a really good book, easy read, uh, on a tough topic for parents uh, wondering, navigating how we can engage our children in, in conversations around this topic. But the whole book, he has a framing of three C's, conviction, compassion, and civility. So conviction, a commitment to the word of God and the Bible's clear teaching on sexuality and gender, which in our language here at Hope Church would be, kind of be that head, that catech catechism, knowing what the Bible says. Compassion, the love of the Lord demonstrated in word and deed, which is getting at our hearts. And then civility, a posture of engagement that leads with respect and a desire to understand. And, and what I like about these three C's is you really have one that is truth-driven, and you have two that are grace-driven. And we talked a little bit about that last week, about how some people are so committed to truth that they actually forget grace, and then some people are so committed to grace that they actually forget truth. Um, and I just like how this, uh, these three C's gives us a model that includes truth and grace, but it's saying maybe err on the side of grace when engaging the world. And I, I would say that while Mark is, is writing to gender dysphoria and speaking with our children, that those three C's I would apply to that second question as well. So how do you engage someone and Christian, uh, fellow Christian on topics of sexuality and gender? Well, well you would want to lead with what we think the Bible clearly teaches on the topic, but you'd also want to show compassion and civility. Uh, and um, you would probably want to not be... I think what happens is sometimes we match the energy of the person that we're speaking to. Um, and I don't know if our online discussions or politics or, or the, a world of outrage that we, we live in has made it okay to kind of match the energy. Um, but I think if you have, if are going into a conversation with civility and compassion in mind, uh, then you will at least uh, honor them even if you do not come to any sort of agreement. And you might. Um, not come to an agreement. So uh, gender dysphoria and transgender, these are, I don't know if we mentioned it, these are questions that we got this week. Well, I, I, I yeah. almost want to ask if there's any okay, follow-up sure. or reflections on that category, under that category of doctrine, those two questions. Are there, is there anything you'd want to add or refine or re-ask in a certain way? Matt Recker. I guess I just have a well, question about the churches that do hang pride flags and stuff like that. What is their, do, do you know? I mean, what, what are they saying why they do it? Or how, why do they differ on what our belief is in that? I, I think it would, be a, it would be totally inappropriate to hang a pride flag. There, there would be nothing at all that would give warrant to that for a Christian institution. My, argue, my, my, my thought would be, we've talked about defense against impurity from, and we have, rightly said that's the one that probably most of the people sitting in here were cooked in, right? Uh, you and I were all in the evangelical world, if that's what you were raised in, you were raised in defense against, very political or purity from, very separatistic as kind of a default. That one is the relevance too. That's just adopting the cultural ethos, cultural values, and then baptizing it as Christian. And again, just in no way should that be done. If relevant, the strength of irrelevance too is it actually tries to be civil, tries to have relationships, etc. But now you're now you're actually supporting foreign institutions to the church with completely different ideologies and dogmas that are directly opposed to Scripture. 
So the idea of a church hanging a fra- one, one of the gay pride flags or the rainbow flags, or like that is literally just a sign of re- relevance to it. And sadly, most of our mainline denominations have gone that route. That's where a lot of our mainline denominations have gone to. They no longer, there was an article written recently about this that I thought was perceptive. They no longer, the mainline denominations no longer have a moral voice in culture because they're so in it, they can't avoid being of it. They've lost the prophetic voice. In trying to do this priestly act, they've denied doctrine and truth. And again, it just can't happen. So, you know, we, you, we can debate the, probably the defense against or purity from approach would be the protesting at rallies. We can talk about that in regard to civility. The doctrine is right on. And those things certainly in voting and county boards and library boards should be, uh, try to be battled in appropriate ways in every possible way. Um, we, you know, protests in and of themselves are a separate topic, but the, the pride flag, that, that's a relevance to approach. With Brad and Shannon. Did you say that you would not encourage uh, uh, gender, sexuality, excuse LGBTQ people to attend this church? No, 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 no. I, I, what I was saying is that we've we've had we've literally had interesting comments coming from what people hear from this class. Like literally, the question is, are you guys wanting to raise a gay pride flag outside the church? That was one comment. Right, which again, I, I just clearly voiced. That, that's not even on the radar. It would be diametrically opposed to everything we're talking about. Then another comment is that lack of, like nobody wrestling with that issue would be welcome here. I'm completely, obviously opposed to anything to do with the gay pride flag. That's foreign to anything biblical Christianity. But I would hope that if a person walked into this church who literally was trying to follow Jesus but wrestled with some form of gender dysphoria uh, or some other kind of sexual issue that is kind of on the hotbed of discussion and debate, that there would be men and women, children of God in this church that would want to minister to them. That, that, That would be my hope. So not that they're not wanted, right? But that actually that we would be a place of civility. And again, that that was that tension I said. The very same people that can be framed as our opponents are also the ones we're called to minister to. Hard to do that both at the same time. And they make, the moment I say something like God made male and female, I'm like, to the culture, I'm just alien and strange. Like I'm immediately out of bounds. A host of people wouldn't want any conversation with me at all. I would be a fundamentalist, conversation would be over. But if you actually have the spirit of God working in a person who is coming in from that world or with that perspective that's trying to align their lives to Jesus as both Savior and Lord, I would hope that issue, among with a ton of other issues that all of us are wrestling with in our sin-filled bodies, that there'd be a place to wrestle with that with sincerity and, and concern to follow Jesus as both Savior and Lord. So I don't know if that gets what you're saying. Okay. I don't have a question, but I just wanted to mention that I brought some books from the library, and including the one that Casey just mentioned about talking to your kids. Was that a paid advertisement, Shannon, or (laughs) are we supposed to do that pro bono? The book that I referenced, read it, Talking with Kids About Gender Identity, is that right? Talking with Children? He's kind of the guru. I mean, you said this last week, I think, but... Yeah, he's at Wheaton. He's actually developed a center for gender studies at Wheaton. And uh, he's, he's released, I don't know how many books. I've read a handful of them on the topic. Yeah. Hazel yeah, no- it's the most recent. I think it came out in 2023. And, and I do think, Shannon, 
has done a beautiful job in tons of these areas, this one included, getting resources. So some of those resources are literally right in Arthur's library. You don't, you don't need to buy it, you can check it out and pay late fees like Shannon makes me pay. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, that's a beautiful ministry that Shannon's run for like 18 years here that is a huge gift to our families and people in our church. One of the things I thought I got out of that is that homosexuality is not a sin, but remember, all of us so that we maybe should lose more of that grace and compassion. But that leads me to a simple question. Are there rights to sin? Or is simply sin, sin? That's not a simple question. <laughs> if you didn't hear his question, it was, are there, is there a rank or a hierarchy to sin? Like, are there sins that are more grievous than, than, than more, others? Mortal or venial? Yeah, yeah. Daisy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I got the smaller podium. You do have the smaller podium. Casey? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I will say we definitely function like that's true. Right? We definitely function like someone coming in here wrestling with, with same-sex attraction would, would, be ha- would have more of a sin presence in their life than, say, someone who was married and viewing pornography. I'm not quite sure. I, I think both options, that there are strict, clear hierarchy and there's no hierarchy, uh, are, are probably out of the picture, that it's somewhere in the messy mi- middle that there are sins that are a real big deal to the Lord. But usually what we end up doing is we project the hierarchy onto the sins that we're not living out and struggling with ourselves, right? So you could be completely appalled by someone that is wrestling with gender dysphoria and and playing around with pronouns and, and more comfortable with they, them, um, and then there would be a whole mess of sins that you are guilty of committing that uh, aren't even on your radar. So I don't want to answer that question necessarily theologically, but I would say practically, usually what we do, and I'm guilty of this, we're all guilty of this, right, is is we are way more comfortable with the sins uh, that we ourselves commit on a frequent basis. And the sins that are out there, those are the nasty, ugly ones. Yeah. We might want to say we're actually more comfortable with our culture's approved sins. Right. I mean, a question that was asked by somebody that's not in the notes, I thought fits this question that that you're asking, Vince. If divorce, this is my summary of it, it's close to what he asked. If divorce destroys one third to one half of all American families, should we, and he was asking about Hope Church, not fight even more vigorously against that? Like if you're thinking which one, you could maybe argue if I'm reflecting it in relation to your question. If you think about the impact of divorce, on how many of the people in our community versus the impact of the drag queen at the Rockland Library, which one had more impact this year and which one got more press, right? And it's not to say that, well, we're just not even gonna care about the drag queen. No, we, we, we wanna care about all things and pursue human flourishing and deal with all issues of brokenness, corruption, and evil. But divorce just gets normalized, pornography gets normalized, and they're just more approved in our culture. And we are being categorized by a church, our church. We are also being categorized by a culture, our culture. And sometimes it's hard to tell where one starts and the other one ends. And that's just worth noting. In, a, in the richest culture in the world, we're very loose on materialism. Is that a surprise? I mean, think about that. We're the richest country in the world, and we don't deal with materialism almost at all. Why? 
Because the church has told us that Jesus never brought up money and thought it was no concern? No, because it's normalized. It looks neutral because we're just super wealthy, generally speaking, as a society. When do we police that? When do we police disciples and say, that luxury car, seriously, Jesus is Lord in your life, right? No, but if it was gender dysphoria, what would we say? All right, so all that to say, theologians in the church have never felt comfortable fully ranking and ordering. That's the domain of God. But part of that's because God has called all things sin. And when Jesus is defining lust of the heart and hating of the heart equivalent to those things, obviously, as much as there's a difference, he's trying to say God's concerned with all sin, and, and we should be too. So next question, what causes gender dysphoria? I don't know. Are there potential spiritual demonic aspects that explain the rapid confusion over gender? Maybe. Next question. I'm kidding. Uh, this person, I, th- I think, was, you know, was going to Genesis and seeing the confusion that the devil brings about, being the father of lies, and wondering if that could be an explanation for the rise in, in gender dysphoria in our culture. There's statistics that I left off from last week I thought that was interesting. The baby boomers in the room, who, are, who here is a baby boomer? So uh, 0.1% of your generation identifies as transgender. The Gen Xers, where are the Gen Xers at? That's you, that's you, raise your hand. 0.5% of the Gen Xers identify as transgender. Millennial, that's my generation. You're an elder edge by far, uh, millennial. That's 1%, and Gen Z, the generation younger than me, is 2.1%. So I I think with this question comes this idea that, well, something's happened to our culture. Maybe there's a demonic thing that's going on. In terms of the research on gender dysphoria, scientists have no clue, absolutely no clue what causes gender dysphoria. There's a lot of different theories uh, none of them agree with each other on what their theories are. Some embrace brain theories, some, some don't. Some think that there's a, in the womb, there's a testosterone wash that could happen to a woman. There's a ton of different theories. There's not any agreement whatsoever from a scientific standpoint. And then from a spiritual standpoint, I would be very cautious of, of labeling anything as simply demonic. So really, and this isn't satisfying, but the answer to this question is truly, we don't know. We don't know what causes gender dysphoria. And while there could definitely be spiritual or demonic aspects, I would just point back to what we just said previously. We don't ever talk about the spiritual demonic influences of the sins that are plaguing the church, too. So if we're going to have the conversation about a potential you know, spiritual influence in this sin and in this reality, I would just say let's also be clear to turn the, the microscopes onto ourselves and ask what are the demonic aspects of our own sin. I understand that that's probably not a satisfying answer, but it's just where we're at. We, we truly don't know. We probably have a better idea, right, as Christians, knowing how all things are fallen and all things, including our gender, are influenced by, by the way that the sin has warped the world. And some of that could very much be spiritual, demonic, and confusion. I did, if you were here for week one, I did try to give us at least 300 years of history that explains how we as a people could get here culturally. And that would be where I would start with the, with the conversation on what causes gender dysphoria. Well, our culture of modernity has been on a journey for 300 years, which has turned more and more inwardly. And this is a product of it. Um, this is one of the products of it. So if it is it's spiritual, it could be. 
Uh, we, we just don't know. So the next question we're going to, I guess we're going to skip for time. I'm kidding. Uh, why is the topic of pro, uh, pronoun usage so complicated? Is it really a jagged, jagged line issue? I got some feedback. I, I don't think everyone was super satisfied with, with some of the things that I did with pronoun usage last week. The topic is incredibly complex. And when we got to that test case last week, I looked up at the time and we were out of time. But I, and then I gave you an extremely difficult test case. So thank you for hanging with us. But here's the thing. We know the principle. We know the principle. Gender is a gift from God. And all of our genders have been warped in some way, shape, or form by the fall. We might struggle uh, with self-esteem, not feeling manly enough. I've, I've struggled with that throughout my life when I look at the male gender stereotypes in our culture. Or we might have pride uh, with our gender. But gender has been completely warped by the fall, and therefore we're all wrestling with it. And this issue of pronoun usage then becomes this, this thing where, where the principle is well established, but the practice then uh, becomes difficult. And there's so many different variables, right? Uh, what about pronoun usage with a non-Christian? What about pronoun usage in a secular workspace? You know, some of your employers now require it as an email heading. My friend works in, uh, in health insurance, and it, his pronouns are on his name badge. Um, that's just expected. So how, how, do, you, how do you enter in to that? Um, how do we treat Christians? Right, with, that are, are differing on the issue. How do we treat tr Christians that are struggling with gender dysphoria? What if they're a first-time visitor in the church? Would that warrant a different response than a lifelong member? I mean, there's so many different scenarios uh, that make us just, we have to slow down. We have to slow down. And I have two quotes. Uh, I, I think one comment was that we were, we're kind of missing the voice of Rosaria Butterfield in this class. And, and there's a lot of you here who have read or enjoy Rosaria. Look at, look at these two quotes from her. And the point of this is, is not to pick apart what she believes, but to show how incredibly complicated this is that someone as brilliant as Rosaria Butterfield uh, over the span of five years has changed absolutely I mean, drastically. Does everybody know who we're talking about? I, I mentioned two people as a frame of reference week two. Preston Sprinkle and Rosario Butterfield. If, you, if you've read anything about related to those, you'll know who they are. If not, that's totally fine, right? But Preston has been just this, Rosario and Preston have the exact same doctrinal statement regarding sexuality and gender and totally opposite responses. So much so that Rosaria recently called Preston a heretic, which is bold language and maybe not even arguably inappropriate. Preston literally grew up and, and holds the same doctrines as John MacArthur in his church. That's where he went to seminary, master seminary. But he is wanting to be his, right, there's, here, he's wanting the priestly response and maybe too strongly. Like he might be so priestly that he errs on not being prophetic. Rosaria, it's way less priestly now and way more prophetic. Uh, she's, she's the one that was the tenured professor at Syracuse lesbian, hardcore feminist, arguably has stated she was involved in the beginnings of this radical sexuality movement, who is now completely opposed to anything, including anything to do with pronouns. But Casey put on here a 2018 Rosaria and a 2023 Rosaria, so you can see the internal wrestling. Do you see that? I mean, 
With my unbelieving friends, this is five years ago, I tread carefully. No, you hear the priestly sensitivity in that? For example, I respect the rules of the LGBTQ community. There's that civility, arguably, of your house. I know these rules well. I helped make them. I remember the right name so that I don't confuse the children raising LGBT homes. I know who is mama and who is mommy. And I teach my children to get it right too. I speak to my neighbors with respect. Do you hear Rosaria the priest there? Now listen to her the prophet five years later. Christians who use the moral lens of LGBTQ plus personhood are not merely a soft presence in the enemy camp. Their malleability makes them pudding in the enemy's hand. They make false converts to a counterfeit gospel that bends the knee to the fictional identity of LGBTQ+. This wolfish theology seeds the moral language to the left by using transgendered pronouns as a moral lens. Respect, courtesy, hospitality. They reject the clarity of the word of God and replace it with garbage. That's interesting. Same person, both published in recently published books. Now, if she can disagree with herself, <laughs> and she's maybe brighter than everybody in this stinking room, I can imagine that a church is gonna have a hard time getting itself ordered properly over this discussion as well. It is hard to be both priestly and prophetic. But here's the thing, here's the hard part. We don't really get an option between choosing between the two. We have to, the mission of the church is both prophet and priest in our culture. And we don't get to choose, well this, group of sinners is the ones we're going to be priests to, and that group of sinners is we're just going to play the prophetic card. Actually, no, we don't get that option. So I, I just thought that was helpful to think about the complexity, the interpretive ranges that are required as you wrestle with this, right? I think even Casey and I, as we've talked about this, have different levels of comfort over the use of pronouns, right? I mean, I, 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 I just feel very uncomfortable, right? And there's that, there's that, maybe that truth coming through too strong. Very uncomfortable with such things. Yet I feel that tension as I would wrestle with that. And I think there's that priestly demand coming out as well. And you can just see that Christians need to have, to balance well, prophet and priest in engagement. We need to have a level and range of Christian liberty that allows for both rosarias to exist at the same time. Because which one, which rosaria do you pick? Which rosaria is correct? Right? So when somebody says, oh, you didn't hear rosaria mentioned, well, what, did you want the 2018 rosaria? Because that she was actually mentioned. But 2023 rosaria was not. Do you see that complexity? And the church rightly can and should feel that. And because we have different postures towards this issue, does, once again, does not mean that the principle That's right. is any different. We both fully affirm gender as a gift from God. And so, uh, yeah, with the, with the pronoun usage, my, my, my charge is, as you guys wrestle with it, just be slow to speak and always assume the best out of the people that you engage with, even one another, even one another, as we talk about these tough topics. Uh, any, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, 
let's open it for more questions. Any other questions around gender dysphoria, transgenderism, or anything uh, as we uh, have a few minutes left? Yeah, Jordan. Without getting all the details in my life, like I probably would have identified as non-binary as a teen. Um, and for me, I, I grew up without a dad, uh, and I was in a rural conservative area where all of my pictures of men were just pictures that I, I didn't drive with, you know. Uh, I didn't enjoy hunting, I'm not a big fan of the outdoors, don't like cars, right? And that was pretty much all the men that I knew. So for me, it was like, well, I'm not that, so what am I? For me, I would say, God, it's kind of weird being in this place now where I think all of culture is sort of asking these questions about gender, because these weren't questions being asked when I was a teen, you know, so I didn't process it then. Uh, so I am sort of now, you know. But for me, one of the things as I've wrestled through this, the question after you guys, and this is kind of a tough one, but, but like biblically speaking, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Uh, because a lot of the, you know, like Wayne Grudeau and, um, you know, even John Piper, you know, people who I respect, but like, you know, they would say things like, well, you know, men are leaders and women are servants or, or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, I see examples of both of those things, right, in both genders. I wouldn't say that one of those yeah. is masculine, one of those is feminine. Um, but then that leaves you with the question, well, what, what does it mean then to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Preston covers this a little bit in his book. Um, and the, the Bible actually says way less than I think we think it says. Which is not, not to say that the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible clearly lays out gender as a gift from God. There's a uniqueness in both genders. Uh, but, but he makes the argument, right, take the Proverbs 31 woman. He makes the argument in the book that a, uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, and, I mean, you hear that you might think uh, someone that manages the home well and someone that, is, uh, you know, respects and honors her husband and, and cares for the, for the children and, and, and does all of this. And we might, we might think it kind of fits into some sort of uh, mold, but he argues the Proverbs 31 woman is, is, is a blueprint for uh, the future, you know, Fortune 500 CEO, right? That there is as much in that uh, about leadership. City gates. Yeah. Leading markets. Yeah. Selling like, of goods and whatnot. Totally. And, and so um, I, I, most of our images, that's not to say that there aren't images of, of what it means to be gendered in, in, in Scripture, but most of our images do come c completely culturally. Um, to, and, and you could argue that uh, in, in how Jesus acts in a lot of his ways of how he engages in the public uh, would, would have people questioning even him uh, in terms of gender stereotypes and, and the, you know, the washing of feet, stuff like that. He's doing things that are completely cross-cultural. But yeah, most of, our, most of our images come from culture or come from poorly written books um, that... Uh, kind of, uh, you know, baptize cultural language with, with biblical imagery. We'll, we'll take a few brave, brave biblical characters and just kind of baptize them in cultural images. And, and so there's not a lot. And, and this is what, what I talked a, a little bit about last week. The gender stereotypes actually make this way more hard, I think, for people uh, like you. And even just thank you for sharing your story. I, I didn't fit the mold of 
of a, a masculine type growing up. And yeah, I wonder, I wonder what would have been the cultural response had I grown up in today's world. The Bible, the main places where it talks about the role of the husband, and, and often tain, authority is used, language is used for leadership, but it's always framed with Jesus as the, again, Ephesians 5. So if you want to say, what's the leader look like in Ephesians 5 in the home? Sacrifice and suffer. So I think about that. Now, yeah, so a leader that is willing to sacrifice and suffer is a very good leader. And they might not be the strongest guy in the room. They might not be wearing camo or whatever the case is. The other thing is, how about this? Like Schwarzenegger? Rambo, right? Uh, 80s maleness, right? Does it look tough and rough and, I mean, gentle, peace, love, forgiveness, compassion, joy, right? I mean, why can't those clear biblical principles be the primary ones we elevate? Why do they have to somehow fit the catechizing of Hollywood and contemporary media? That, that's the part to me that's so bothersome. I actually think it gives a ton, and beautifully, they would actually fit both genders very, very well, in very different bodies, in very different homes, with, to moms, to dads, it would look very, but those are the ones we should say to the church, you want to be a godly man, fruit of the spirit. And if you're doing that, dude, you're a man. If you can put up with jerks and trouble, if you can love your wife through thick and thin, if you can be patient in suffering, if you are willing to sacrifice, I don't care how many deer you've shot or how, how strong you are. If you can be that, you are a man. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. We, we just, we remove the Bible and we're looking through the catechizing in the world to tell us that. I wanted to share something that I took notes on at one of our youth conferences. Basically, she just talked about position, office, role, right. more than what you're interested in or what you're good at. And, that, and that's the important, that's the important thing. Yeah. Just for a little context, I'll admit I'm probably on the more recent Rosaria than the previous Rosaria side of things. But this all came to a head for me yesterday. About the middle of last week, I got a call from the uh, Rock River Blood Bank we're low on your blood. And so I, I drove down to the uh, blood bank. <laughs> the vampire just, movie or something. Just bring, it yeah. in. Just bring in your blood. <laughs> bring in your blood. So I, I drove down there and the, the nice young nurse sat on one side of the table and, and poked my finger and took blood pressure. And she said, you have to answer all these questions and you have to put a signature to it. And I said, okay, this sounds like something new. And she says, yes, it is new. You have to verify that you're not pregnant. <laughs> Yeah. And so... Did you deny I, to answer the question? I, I, uh, just the week before, I lost my sister. She had uh, to have blood in her fight for her life. And so recognizing that, I'm always going to give blood. But I put my signature to that form yesterday, admitting that as a 67-year-old male, <laughs> I'm not pregnant. And, and so my point is, as a Christian, how am I going to be in the world and not of the world because I just, in my mind's eye, jumped to the part where I'm of the world by working with this whole dialogue and admitting that's a legitimate question and it, I'm just, this has been a lousy day for me struggling You're, with what I did. Marshall, you are living in Babylon right now. That's where you're living, in Babylon. And I know you're a, a long timer, you're a, a native of this area and a 
a, a man of the land and you feel an affinity here, like many of us do. I, I'll talk about this in the service if, if you're there about loving the place we're in and you out of all this church would be one that would fit that. Yet we all have to know the Bible would say this is Babylon. So you are just living in another world and how do you avoid Babylon? I don't know. But the, the very fact that you felt a strangeness, a sadness, a brokenness for your Babylon is actually the first and most important Christian response. You could not give blood anymore to, do, to accomplish what? You're still living in Babylon. The, the, the cultures, I mean, it, it's not, you could protest it, but you actually gave blood because you believe, even if those people don't have God's special grace, you believe in God's common grace. And by you giving blood, you're saying, I will not bend the knee to your version of religion, but I believe that you, without you even knowing it and doing it in a distorted way, that our creator designed our bodies in such a way that I can give something to you. I'd like to give a whole lot more to this culture, but I can give something to you. It's actually pure common grace. I think that's beautiful. Even if you sat there like, how weird is that? But you're not going to apply for Rock Valley, my son, Illinois State. You're not going to apply for schools without putting a gender on an application. You, 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 that's just good. I mean, so you're not going to go to college. You're not going to get a driver's license if it's as one of those drop-down boxes. I mean, it's impossible to live in Babylon and not live in Babylon, right? And so we just have to feel that without in any way capitulating our principles at all, right? And so that's the trick. The more we feel like we're in Babylon, the better it is because that's actually the reality. So you gave blood. I gave blood. You gave blood? Yeah. Should we, one more? Or one should, more, yeah. one more, yeah, one more. But I have struggled with this, currently are in it, living a life, and have no intention to make it because it, it's been some intentions in our hearts, and it, it's been weighing on me a lot these last seven weeks, but what do I do with my family members? How do I talk to them? Because honestly, it's been important I've struggled a lot, especially for college years, and it's, it's not something I would ever want someone to be young. That's a good that that that's a good word, and you're 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 circling around where it's good to end with this posture, right? My my concern would be for us again, and I get that there's going to be the prophets and the priests sitting in this room on a continuum. If you're the, the, if you're too far prophet, as good as it might feel to be sitting in some place of truth, you might annoyingly be more self-righteous than you realize. If you're too far priestly, as good as it feels to be trying to be sensitive, engaging with all the image bearers out there that are lost and broken, you might be actually too accommodating the culture than you realize. And so feeling that tension between prophet and priest, seeing our neighbors and our, our, our blood nurses and our, all, all of this as the balance of both people that are opponents, but also people to whom we are called to minister is what it looks like. And it is Babylon. And the only time you're not in Babylon is when you walk into this place 
where we gather in the name of Jesus, no other kingdom, right? And we're all siblings under the blood of Christ alone, not our own blood. And it's a, holy, a whole different counterculture where truth and grace dance together in joy. And Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And grace is both common and special. And then the moment you leave, you're in Babylon, even if you're in the neighborhood you've lived in for 30, 40 years. But thanks for wrestling with this with us. Let me close our time with prayer.